Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And Caroline, first of all, I almost forgot my name right then when I was introducing myself. <laughs> it's a danger. Yeah, it's a little disconcerting. Um, but coming up with a title for this episode was almost, uh, well, actually, uh, only slightly more challenging than remembering my own name. Really? Just now. Yeah. Because what do you, what are we talking about? Talking about cu- relationship speak, couple talk. Yeah. Maybe you could call it pillow talk, but pillow talk is usually referring to post-coital chit-chat. Or just being in places with pillows. Then there's baby talk, but then there's a difference between whether you're baby talking to a baby or to your romantic baby. Your significant other. Yeah. Your romantic bae. And there are pet names, but that's a completely separate category of this conversation. Well, I would think that it would fall under couple speak. Exactly. The couple speak umbrella. Um so do you have any any catchy term for this? <sighs> um no, absolutely not. I would just say that it's couple language, that it's it's the weird like coded language that you use with your your special person, your special someone. Sexy babble. <laughs> Sexy <laughs> Well, it's not always sexy. Sometimes it's adorable. Adora speak. Oh, it's rarely sexy for people who are hearing you who are <laughs> not in the couple. <laughs> it's usually more along the lines of, of nauseating and cringe-inducing. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I think it is whenever I overhear it. I mean, my boyfriend and I definitely have ways that we speak to each other that we don't speak to other people. Thank God, I would hope not. Uh but I definitely don't want other people to overhear that necessarily. And it's funny when I told my boyfriend that we were talking about uh, relationship speak, couple speak, uh, pet names and stuff like that this week. He looked at me with this mix of horror and also excitement, which is a really unique facial expression. I recommend trying to elicit that from from friends and loved ones if you have the opportunity. Uh, he's like, you're not going to tell them how we talk to each other or what we call each other, are you? Yeah, you are. I am. Well, well what is it? Dish. I mean, do you do you two have special words or codes that are safe for our listeners, of course, <laughs> and for me? More really, honestly, listeners, I love you, but really, I... <laughs> I don't know if I want the TMI. Well, uh, yeah, I'm just going to go ahead and dive in. And uh, I don't think he's going to listen to this episode because I think he is already like preemptively horrified that I might talk about it. But, uh, (laughs) okay, I guess I should preface this by saying things we don't call each other. So we don't say boo or bae. He is like strongly opposed to using the term boo. Okay, so far we are... Totally opposites. Continue. <laughs> well, no, I did date a guy right after college, and we called each other Boo, but that's the only person that I've ever done that with. But he was also a ghost. <laughs> yeah. That was real awkward when you tried to snuggle. But no, my boyfriend and I call each other either, we just refer to each other as boyfriend and girlfriend, like, hey, boyfriend, come here. Or we call each other... <laughs> Listeners, can you feel me blushing? We call each other boyfriend dog and girlfriend dog. Because early on in our relationship, he like jumped on the couch when I was using my laptop and I was like, God, you're like a big puppy sometimes. And he said, yeah, like I'm a, I'm a boyfriend dog. 
So that became a thing. How does it feel publicizing this information, Caroline? I don't know how red am I right now. You're a pretty solid shade of pink. <laughs> yeah, maybe say. it's just warm in here. Well, listen, I am in the opposite camp. Uh, my fiance and I are all about some boo and babe. And to the point that our friends will sometimes make fun of us when we're all hanging out and intentionally be like, oh, hey, babe. Hey, babe. What's going on, babe? Can you I have that, heard babe? this. Yeah. And <laughs> I don't care because that is just how we talk to each other. And in terms of like couples speak, we don't necessarily have like a cutesy language aside from me feeling at liberty to abbreviate words as often as possible because it is one of my fave things to do uh, when I'm just at home, chit-chat, not on the mic, you know. Uh, but our couple speak is more of a shared humor brain. Yeah. So it's the thing of making the exact same joke at the same time. Although sometimes I get a little competitive and I'll make the joke first. And then he'll come in a split second after me, and I'm like, yes, made the joke first. (laughs) Yeah, no, my boyfriend and I do that all the time. We will frequently make the same joke around the same time. We will, like, be picking up the phone to text each other at the same time. So we do have, like, a two-person hive brain. Um, But I'm imagining you only know that because you're sitting next to each other (laughs) when that happens. Yeah, all the time. He's actually here right now. Ah. He's under the table. Sorry. Sorry. Um, no, we, we do have, we don't use baby talk because to me, I, I find that nauseating. Uh, no judgment. (laughs) Um, but we do have like a certain type of voice that we use with each other sometimes when we're trying to be playful. Not, it's not an all the time thing, but when we're trying to be more playful and, and cute with each other, we do have a voice we use. I'm not going to repeat it on the podcast. Sorry. I've noticed my phone voice changes, especially on the telephone call on the way home from work. Mm -hmm. Um, it goes up. It's a little bit softer. It's the closest I get to a baby voice. Also though, it is the same voice I use if I'm at a restaurant and I have to like send something back and I'm really nervous about it. You know, it's that like hyper feminized <laughs> type of uh, voice. Uh, not that I am like similarly nervous of how my fiance will respond to me if I need something. Um, but it is interesting to think about, you know, this, this common couple language that is unique to all couples, but there's that common pattern of love and sex influencing how we talk and the way we modulate our voices and the words that we suddenly make up. Well, love and sex, yeah, but I mean, I think intimacy in general, because you can develop languages with other intimate people in your life, other significant others who aren't your boo, maybe your best friend, you and your best friend have nicknames for each other or ways that you speak to each other, whether that's tone or just a sort of vocabulary that maybe you don't use with other people because either you've known this person for so long or maybe you're new friends and you've developed a really strong bond suddenly and so you you just speak to each other in a different way than you speak with other people. Yeah, I mean, it's true. My best friend and I exclusively speak German to each other. <laughs> no, it's true. With my one of my best friends, we have a specific text speak that we use of mm-hmm. intentional misspellings of words that I really only send to her. <laughs> and it's our way of expressing affection to each other. 
like if I say I miss you so much, I'm gonna spell so S E W W W W W W. It just means something different. No, it's bonding. Yeah. I mean, that, and it happens when you spend a lot of time with someone. And it's this, it's an actual literal thing, and it's called phonetic convergence. It's basically when you're spending time with people, whether it is an intimate partner or a best friend or even work colleagues that you're spending a lot of time with, you can start to mimic the way that the other person speaks, particularly if you like both the person and what they're saying. And this can involve accent changes or even the use of different dialects. I wonder, too, if it extends into gestures and body language at all. Yeah, that is what researcher Elaine Hatfield called emotional contagion. This sort of encompasses what we're, the ideas that we're already familiar with of mimicking someone's body language, their facial expressions. And it's part of catching their emotion, whether that's anxiety, joy, whatever. I mean, how often has this happened to you where like someone in your family or a friend or somebody at work is like in a really bad mood or in a really great mood and you kind of catch it and start mimicking and you even feel it within you like, oh, I'm starting to feel a little more anxious because this person is anxious or whatever the case may be. And studies have shown that the longer people are speaking with each other, the more they'll match speaking rate frequency and vocal intensity, which I'm just imagining two people gradually yelling at each other. <laughs> that happens. Though. I feel like I've, I've been in that conversation, although booze might have been involved. Booze? Like uh, drinking booze or, or multiple boyfriends? <laughs> Good question. And I mean the alcohol. Um, and also this exclusivity develops the longer that you kind of develop that conversational rapport with a person. This is probably why we can't have long, extended, in-depth conversations with good friends of ours if you're in a noisy bar, for instance. Um, and then finally, studies have found that you will align description schemes and sentence structures. We're such robots, in a way. We're adorable, meaty, squishy robots yeah. who can't help but mimic other people's speech, but also their posture and body language and facial expressions, all that good stuff. So why? What is going on? Uh, there was a study in October of 2014 from Language Variation and Change. That's a journal. Uh, they found that the degree of vocal change when we're talking to someone can be related to how much you agree with the person. So they did this study where participants listened to a politically charged diatribe and then had to describe a cartoon. And I think the cartoon was a of a, well, it was like a nun giving a banana to a monk or something. No, it was a waitress giving a banana to a monk, which is like really weird and absurd. But they just had the person describe that strange cartoon. And researchers found that when the participants agreed with the p- political rant that they had heard and with the ideology in it, and when they seemed to respect the person speaking and their ideas, their syntax in describing the cartoon matched the political ranters syntax. When they didn't agree with the person, didn't respect their ideas, didn't respect what they were saying, there wasn't much of a language match, if at all. So in short, basically, aligning your speech patterns with the person you're talking to facilitates communication and understanding. It's our way of being like, hey, we're on the same team. I like you. I respect you. I'm going to start to morph, even unconsciously, I'm going to start to morph the way that I speak so that you can understand me even better. So the way we think about the person across from us 
moderates how we talk to them, yeah. essentially. Yeah. Um, and we see variations among basically any group. I mean, twin speak is probably the best known among these. Uh, twin speak is officially called cryptophasia. P.S. Um, and it's because twins spend a lot of time together and are on the same developmental trajectory and they have that intimacy level that reinforces each other's speech patterns and inventions. And also, of course, twins share that same mind. Yeah. <laughs> they have a twin mind. <laughs> no, they don't actually have a twin mind, but I have uh, twin nephews and I have seen this happen because they're also identical and when they get going making jokes, going on these tangents. It's incredible how they just build on one another. Yeah, and cryptophagia also doesn't just relate to twins speaking similarly or kind of developing a language. It refers specifically to, like, almost speech that's detrimental to the the pair of twins because perhaps there's a mispronunciation or a speech impediment uh, that leads to this false language for for. For so long, people have been fascinated by twins, like, oh, my God, they're developing their own language, when really it's it's less developing their own language because they might not even understand it as babies or toddlers or whatever. But they're just trying to mimic each other and communicate with each other on the same wavelength. And cryptophasia, as opposed to just like regular, happy, babbly twin speak, is oftentimes something that has to get, you have to get a speech therapist involved to try to like move the kids on from using their own secret language. So when we think colloquially of twin speak, it's really just sibling speak or friend speak. It's anyone who hangs out and likes each other enough. Yeah, anyone for long who, enough time. Speak. Yeah, anyone who spends like a super huge amount of dedicated intimate time together that they develop the same sort of language that maybe others don't even know what you're talking about. Such as roommates. Uh, there was a study in January 2012 in the Journal of Phonetics which looked at four sets of male roommates and found phonetic convergence was related to the roommate's closeness and relationship quality. And Caroline, now I have to ask, I mean, did you and dude roommate end up <laughs> twin speaking all the time? Uh, yeah, dude roommate and I, we definitely have our own like shorthand language with each other because we've known each other since, I mean, we were roommates in college. We've known each other since we were, but college babies. Um, and then we lived together as adults too after, after many years apart. But we've definitely had a really strong friendship over the years. And the way we speak to each other, even if we're not using like weird words, we still have a tone and a rapport with each other that's unique to our relationship versus other people. But yeah, the study was interesting because the, they were looking specifically at sets of roommates who didn't know each other before. So it wasn't like they were friends and they'd already maybe developed a rapport. They specifically wanted to look at the trajectory of like, as these guys get to know each other and spend a ton of (laughs) unavoidable time together, what happens? And so they found that the guys who had the stronger, better, more positive relationship ended up unconsciously mimicking each other's speech patterns. So in the context of romantic relationships, then let's peel back some more layers as to why it happens. Aside from this clearly like neurological pattern of us mirroring each other. I bet some mirror neurons are involved in this whole thing. Um, But if we look at these emotionally intimate relationships, that kind of couple language, couple speak 
develops alongside the vulnerability that comes with being in most, you know, long-term romantic relationships. I mean, you have the most childlike parts of yourself on display, hopefully not all the time, but from time to time. And uh, Bustle uh, had a pretty in-depth piece on this and talked to relationship expert Wendy Walsh about it, who said, keep in mind, a relationship is an exchange of care. Yes. And as Elizabeth and the Catapult said, I don't know if anybody else ever listened to that band. They have that song called We're All Just Taller Children. Mm. It's true. You know, and, and this the intimacy with your partner can really reveal, like we said, those childlike parts of yourself that just want to be taken care of. And so in this article in Bustle, they were talking about how as intimacy deepens, you tend to move away from real life language. And part of this is abbreviating or shortening words, Kristen, uh, for instance, using hun instead of honey, like you did when you were but a wee baby. Oh, I always called my mom hun. <laughs> hun, could you get me a bottle? I'm so thirsty. But also like your parents did with you. They probably had little nicknames for you, too. And so when no, you know, it was always developing child. <laughs> Nothing girl they child. just used your first, your whole, your whole name, your whole full Christian name. They even added some names <laughs> just to make it even more formal. But research has actually shown that the use of baby talk tends to be used less and less as time goes on. It tends to be used early because it's another way of developing and strengthening a bond. And that's coming from the Kinsey Institute, who did a bunch of research into couple language. And it really comes out of this whole, I don't know what to call it, pattern that was established with your parents generally. Like if you had a loving, safe relationship with your parents, that's the last time you experienced these overwhelming feelings of love and care and safety. And so that's where our use of nicknames and pet names and, and baby talk comes from. And if, going back again to the context of dating relationships or marital relationships, if we pull in that physical intimacy as well, that, of course, will involve some neurotransmitters and neurochemicals being released in our brain, such as dopamine and oxytocin, these things that make us feel good, make us feel bonded to the other person. So, you know, you, you're just getting this 360 recipe for intimacy and closeness and that is stripping away self-censoring that we would normally do, or in my case, using entire words rather than just half of were. <laughs> and it's really a cycle. I mean, using this type of language with our partners deepens the bond and creates a unique shared identity, which then leads to creating more unique language and more bonding. So it never stops. You're never getting out of it. You're always going to talk like this with your partner. Get used to it until you don't, which we'll hit on in the second half of the podcast. But researchers have talked about how it really reflects that need to represent how special our attachment is. Yes, to, to outsiders and friends and whoever, but really to each other. And uh, that's something that Ian Kerner, who's a sex counselor, told Bustle for that same article that Kristen mentioned. But it's the same idea that you might have nicknames for your BFF, too. Like, it's just communicating to one another that your relationship is special. 
This is the sweetest podcast, Caroline, I gotta say. <laughs> We're just getting real fresh. But so, what do secret languages mean for couples? I mean, we keep going back and forth between different types of relationships, but we will get more into that right after a quick break. relationship outsider, it might not seem like the more the better, you know, the more you're having to listen to other people's adorable pet names and little baby talk back and forth or sexy babble, as I like to call it. But uh, research in the Journal of Social and Personal Relationships does find that the more a couple uses nicknames, made up words and secret code requests for sex, Mm. the higher the relationship satisfaction. And no surprise, it means you're like living in your own world. Yeah, relationship therapist Jamie Turndorf was talking to Women's Health Mag. By the way, I just started reading a book of hers about how to stop fighting. Not that, not to indicate that I'm fighting all the time with boyfriend dog, but it's always important to be armed with good information about how to succeed in relationships. Anywho, Turndorf agrees that it's quantity over quality. And she talks about how studies have found that couples who maintain, and I love this, I'm like, how did you come up with, but I'm sure there's science behind it. I'm, I'm sure. Uh, couples who maintain a five to one ratio of positive to negative communications are far more likely to remain happy. And she says that using nicknames and made up language is an easy way to do that. It's an easy way to inject positive communication into your everyday life. I love thinking about this, though, in the real world situations of a, a fight or disagreement brewing and trying to do this, you know, like five to one ratio yourself to be like, actually, babe, you're wrong, sweetheart. <laughs> You're so wrong, honey. I don't know. Sweetheart for me. And I I know that other people probably have this experience, like different words have different connotations. But to me, like if you say, oh, she's my sweetheart, that's pretty sweet. But I have actually used sweetheart in terms of being that's more likely to be my word when I'm frustrated with you. Yeah, that's a a passive aggressive sweetheart, sweetheart. Uh, And I I think my dad does the same thing. I think that's where I get it. My dad, when he is like super angry at, at my mom or me and he's trying not to yell or whatever, he'll he'll refer to us as sweetheart. Maybe he's just trying to maintain that five to one. Yeah, you who, know? who knew? Well, I wonder, stuff Chad Irvin never told you. Well, there's even a term for all of this put forth by researchers Carol J. Brewis and Judy C. Pearson in a study they put out in 1993. They refer to Couple speak nicknames and this insider language and relationships as idiosyncratic communication. I love all these non-romantic terms for the way we sexy babble each other. It's academia. And they found, though, that this idiosyncratic communication, not surprisingly, is associated with marital satisfaction. Uh, Couples in their first five years of marriage sans kids reported using the most idioms. And I wonder, parents listening, if maybe once you have kids, some of that focus on your coded language refocuses to your new babe, your new little baby. (laughs) Your new baby. Yeah, that you get to literally baby talk to. Yeah. It's slightly more acceptable in in mixed company. (laughs) Yeah, I would think so. Because also, when there's a baby around, Friends and family and whoever are probably more likely to also baby talk your baby, 
Whereas if you and your boo are sitting around, your friends probably aren't going to baby talk you guys. From a genuine perspective, they might do it to make fun of you. Yeah. They might not join in on your genuine baby talk with each other. That could be weird. That could be, yeah. If they, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know what will be going on at, uh, <laughs> at that potluck. <laughs> Suddenly everyone's keys are in a bowl. Uh-oh. Most <laughs> awkward work Christmas party ever. Uh, but there's an article that we read in The Telegraph that talks about how uh, couple language, not necessarily baby talk, but couple language indicates whether you're in sync. Uh, it really, like menstrual uh, synchrony? No, I mean like the band, the boy band. <laughs> Whether you're Lance Bass. Um, and so basically, the ebbs and flows of your use of couple speak mimics the ebbs and flows of your relationship, your highs and lows. If you stop using couple speak or you're not using it as much one week, does that mean the relationship's over? No. Thinking back, though, on my relationship, there have been the times when we've been, you know, hitting the valleys that you go through. Mm-hmm. And there usually is an absence of the the boo and the babe. I know. And I thought about that, too. And I realized that it's the same with me. And we're in good company, Kristen, because uh, University of Texas researchers looked at letters between Victorian poets Elizabeth Barrett and Robert Browning, in addition to Sylvia Plath and Ted Hughes. And they found that both in their work and in their private letters, the couple's language styles matched. But they matched most intensely at the most intense and positive parts of the relationship. Yeah, so for Sylvia and Ted, who clearly had a very tumultuous relationship, those highs and lows were reflected in the terms of use and avoidance of matching language in their letters. Um, even at their high points, though, they had less matching than Elizabeth Barrett and Robert Browning. So, I mean, is, is was that just a sign that they were doomed? I don't know it's, if it's a sign that they were doomed, but I think it's a, it's a, perhaps, you know, putting on my little psychologist cap, not at all. It's, what would that cap look like? Would it be like a driving cap? Oh, a jaunty driving cap. I'm thinking, what about like an Amelia Earhart style aviator <laughs> cap? Okay, I'm putting on my psychologist aviator cap. Yes. And I think it's more if you realize, if you use a little bit of self-awareness and realize, like, I'm not using very much, like, affectionate language. What's going on? It just might be a good opportunity to step back and say, oh, are there things I'm not addressing in my relationship that are making me feel like I want to be less affectionate? Because I know when my boyfriend and I have hit those valleys, Kristen, There is a feeling that you're less driven to be affectionate, whether that's physical affection or verbal affection. But in in great times when everything's going swimmingly, we're more likely to use those sweet nicknames or use our special voices with each other than we would otherwise. So there are some shortcuts in a way that this couple language can offer to help us navigate through those valleys, not to be confused with Hidden Valley, the land of ranch, where <laughs> you and your boyfriend and girlfriend, whomever, just going to salad bars all the time. Um, so the first shortcut to pay attention to is that you might have code words for life events like bad days or annoying events that let your partner know how your day sucked without having to relive it. And this is not me because I'm a I'm a real talker when it comes to <laughs> comes the tough times and I'm just going to want to tell my fiance all of the details after a period of silence. I need to quietly process Mm -hmm. and then 
I'll be like cooking dinner and drinking a glass of wine because that calms me down. And, you know, 45 minutes later, I've gotten through, you know, the first hour of my day recounting it. Well, Conger, you know, I'm, I, studies have shown that the more you vocalize your anger, the more it builds on itself. So perhaps that there is something to this, you know, telling your boyfriend if you had a bad day at work or whatever. Not that you ever have a bad day at work, Kristen, but you could, you know, be like, ah, it's the usual. Maybe maybe your boo would know, like, ah, it's just another day with rough stuff. Well, yeah, maybe I, he and I can strategize together on some, <laughs> you know, some just quick phrases that can, you know, nip all of my retelling <laughs> in the bud. Um, but if the conflict is between... You and your SO, your significant other, there's always shortcut number two, which is using that humor in a fight as a way to resolve it, employing an inside joke or a pet name to sort of steer you back into relationshipsville, which is challenging sometimes depending on the conflict and sometimes depending on what we are talking about. Don't call me, bae. Ain't you bay right now? I might be in twenty minutes. That's that's where we get the the negative sweetheart, I guess. Yeah, don't yeah, don't use it like that. Listen, sweetheart. Because when that happens, I think that's far more toxic. If you make the 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 sick jokes, the angry, darker jokes, and use pet names sarcastically, yeah, that is toxic. That's only gonna. Deepen that conflict. Yeah, it might be more of like a when the realization starts to dawn that perhaps it's an unproductive argument or a fight that you've had a million times. Maybe once you start to realize that and pull yourself out of it, you can crack an inside joke and like a, hey, I'm offering a hand out of this fight. Do you want to get out of it? This is silly. Yeah, I mean, that's one of those situations where one of you has to have the lighter perspective on it. I mean, but if you're both in the trenches, good luck, sweetheart. But all of these couple researchers and intimacy experts applaud the use of pet names. So hopefully they're in approval of of me saying boyfriend dog, because that's definitely a very strange pet name. Oh, yeah. I think it's a, I think any psychologist would be like, that's super healthy. You have a (laughs) unique name for the person. You love. So if you and your significant other are really you know, hip to the kids speak these days, uh, if you don't want to adopt Caroline's boyfriend, dog, girlfriend, dog, <laughs> you could be each other's bae, which I mean, and that also is not exclusive to romantic relationships. I mean, I have girlfriends who are bae to me. Um, but also when we're talking about bae, even though it is new to the mainstream, it has been around for uh, longer than a hot minute. Yeah, and I mean, whatever you call your person, or you maybe you call your person person. That's also a thing that I call my boyfriend. Uh, it's a positive thing. Author Pat Love was telling Women's Health that pet names are an auditory marker that identifies the relationship as exclusive, as does all of this couple language that we've been talking about. And it lets your boo and everyone else know that you're committed. And they reinforce that little mini culture, that mini environment that is your relationship. Yeah, speaking to Scientific American, Carol J. Bruce was talking about this and how if essentially you can't laugh at yourself and be lighthearted in your relationship, then that relationship is not going to sustain itself in 
a lighthearted, playful kind of way over the long term. And that, and that playfulness is so necessary, I think, for long term sustainability to make myself sound like my relationship is actually like a corporation. <laughs> and she says that maybe we even value our nicknames more today because everybody's always on the Twitter, you know? They're always on the Twitter always talking twitting. to each other, always talking to each other. And she says that these this use of pet names, these auditory markers can help create and reinforce that two person special intimate sphere. Like if you're dealing with the public all day long, that you get to come home to your person, use special names in a special language. And it just reinforces like we're each other's. And this is a safe, wonderful space. Well, I sort of have the reverse with that to some extent with my fiance because he has appeared with me on a number of stuff I never told you videos and he goes by the uh, the pseudonym Professor Boyfriend now of course Professor Fiance which some people miss here is Professor Beyonce which I'm also <laughs> totally fine with um, so it's like our our public pet name because I like preserving the intimacy of our first names together and who we are as a couple to all of our family and friends off of the Internet. Mm-hmm. I don't call him Professor Fiance at home <laughs> unless yeah. he's wearing a bla- tweed blazer with elbow patches. <laughs> that never happens. And I just assume that everybody used pet names for each other. For their significant others. It turns out that, no, it's not true. Uh, the authors of The Normal Bar did a completely non-randomized, non-scientific internet survey on uh, U.S. participants, uh, interviewing them about pet names. Well, a couple language in, in general, I think, but pet names, too. And found that 67% of their U.S. survey respondents said they used pet names in their relationships. But among those who said they were very happy in their relationship, that number shoots up to 76%. So there you go. That Yes, this is unscientific, but that confirms everything we've been saying, that the stronger and happier you feel in your relationship, the more likely you are to develop this sort of secret language between the two of you. To reflect your sweet feelings. And we take that sweetness so literally in a lot of the dessert-related pet names that we will give each other, which kind of subtly indicate that your person is not just a person, but a treat. Mm. The light in your life. Hey, Puddin. Like Puddin, Cupcake. Um, The French have My Little Cabbage or Cream Puff. Uh, There's a Dutch term meaning candy. In Russian, your Vashenka is your special little cherry. <laughs> um, I'm not a fan, though, of the sweet food nicknames. I, I do like my little cabbage. I'm down for that. Mon petit chou. Although, Professor Fiance would probably prefer something like my, my handsome, my gallant cabbage. <laughs> Keeps you regular. Um, no, I called my, uh, my college roommate Deepa. Uh, I called her, we called each other Puddin' all the time. Cause we, we, she and I lived together our senior year of college and then worked together at the newspaper. And we always referred to each other as Puddin'. How you doing, Puddin'? How, how's your day? And yeah, so I don't think I've ever used like a sweet food term with a boyfriend. Yeah, I mean, there was the sugar free jello guy, but that, that clearly was doomed from the start. <laughs> Jigglers? <laughs> yeah, jello jiggler. <laughs> Um, but of course, there are downsides 
too, these pet names. Can you talk a little bit about roommate syndrome, which is apparently can, uh, can foster? This is, I'm going to be honest. This is like a deathly serious fear of mine in any relationship is roommate syndrome. And yes. I mean, I think, I think that that's something that a lot of couples share about this fear of like, you know, especially maybe if, if your parents developed roommate syndrome and you grew up watching that. And it's something that authors Maggie Arana and Julian Davis talk about in arguing against the use of pet names. And their argument is basically that the minute you start calling your sweetie muffin, your relationship goes from super hot to friendly. And they think that's like the worst thing that can happen. So they say that it kills your sex life. But everything that we've read so far, Kristen, indicates that pet names and couple speak ebb and flow with the strength and satisfaction of your relationship. And that it's the relationship that dictates how much actual couple speak you'll use. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's the type of pet names that will develop. I mean, I, I, I can't see roommate syndrome um, happening to people who call each other muffin and cutie cake, cabbage pie. <laughs> but if it's, I, I'll catch my, <laughs> this is embarrassing, but uh, I catch myself partially because it's our dog's name. Oh, uh, but never, fiance and I are never buddy to each other. Hey, buddy. Hey, hey buddy. buddy. What's up? Like, it's, we intentionally keep our pet names non-platonic because we live together, too. And yeah, I mean, roommate syndrome, oh, yeah, it can happen for mm-hmm. sure. Um, and it is, I think, minding your language is a good way to guard against it. Yeah. So it's always like, Hello, hottest, sexy cabbage in the garden. (laughs) You are my sexy little cabbage. And as one of the authors, Arana, points out, hey, we're all ego-driven. We like hearing our names, although... Although the use of your real Christian name, <laughs> I, which I say lightly, uh, often indicates you're in trouble. Yeah, I, it is so weird to me sometimes to hear my fiance call me Kristen. Yeah, something serious is going on. Yeah, I'm like, happens. wait, no, I only answered a babe. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yeah, what is this? Yeah, I only if I'm yelling across the house because I need something or I have a question, it's always going to be boyfriend. That's what I yell across the house. And he, same thing, girlfriend, yells across the house at me. And listeners, if she needs me at work, she just <laughs> yells podcaster. But the thing is, we have desks next to each other. And I'm like, why are you yelling? Colleague cabbage. <laughs> Colleague cabbage. <laughs> my petite, my petite colleague cabbage. Uh, I kind of like that, to be honest. I think that's that's pretty sweet. Now girl. we need someone to, to draw us as uh, affectionate cabbage friends. Yes. Do we just need cabbage patch dolls? No. 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 Caroline's eyes just flew open. No, I'm not a fan. I had cabbage patch dolls growing up. I went to the cabbage patch like factory. Mm-hmm. What is it called? The cabbage patch, like hospital or something? Yeah, the hospital where they like birth the Cabbage Patch Babies. I, I'm no, I don't need to revisit that. Are you over it? But uh, Cabbage Cubicle Mates, we can be. Yeah. Okay. Cool. <laughs> yeah, listeners, if anyone can uh, render us as as friendly cabbages, we'd love you forever. Don't forget Kristen's red lipstick. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> well, now we want to know about your secret languages that you share with significant others, whether that is a romantic significant other or a BFF or a family member, whoever is special to you. Does this resonate with how you find yourself speaking to the people you love. Let us know. Momstuff at HowStuffWorks.com is our email address. You can also tweet us at MomStuffPodcast or message us on Facebook. And we've got a couple of messages to share with you right now. Alrighty. Well, I have a Facebook message here from Christine about our maternity leave episode. She says, hello, ladies. Hello, Christine. First of all, as everyone always does, I must tell you that I have been a fan for many years. You've helped me through hours of tedious activities and helped me be singled out as the person in my circle of friends who's constantly saying, so I was listening to a podcast. She goes on to say, as I was getting ready this morning, I was listening to the podcast on maternity leave. I might have an interesting perspective on this. I'm a teacher and not just a classroom teacher, but I teach theater at a school in Texas. As you know, everything in Texas has to be bigger than life and theater is no exception. The expectation for my theater program is anywhere from three to five shows per year. These are all rehearsed after school lets out. Rehearsals are generally three times per week and last generally two hours. And as you get closer to the show, they are more frequent and last longer. I don't have children yet, but with 30 right around the corner, it's on my brain. My constant question that I'm asking myself is how can I manage to have a child when I'm putting so much time into my theater program? When I ask this of other theater teachers I meet, about 50% say you just make it work and the other 50% say planning. What they mean is this. They gave themselves approximately one month to get pregnant for the year and then would wait until the next year if they didn't get pregnant. Most teachers will jokingly tell you that the ideal month to get pregnant is August. That way, when you give birth, you won't have to come back to school and will just get to spend the whole summer with your new bundle of joy. The terrifying aspect of this is that I am seriously considering this. I hate that I have to feel that I need to be pigeonholed into getting pregnant during only one month of the year, but the thought of not being able to spend those first few weeks and months with my first child is heartbreaking. If you read this on the podcast, please add a shout-out for all the teachers who spend so many additional hours at school with their child in tow while they're in daycare and mom or dad is checking their watch because they know they need to pick them up before 6 p.m. and who decided to stay home because they, too, need recognition. Well, thanks, Christine. Well, I've got a letter here from Samantha, also about our maternity leave episode, and she writes, The maternity leave topic struck home for me for a few reasons. The first one being that you didn't discuss how pregnancy and the lack of maternity leave can affect students. I had my daughter my second senior year in college. I knew I wouldn't get any time off classes and that as soon as I graduated, I'd have to start working. So we planned the pregnancy for my Christmas break. I carried her with little complication for entirely full spring, summer, and fall semesters. Due to medical reasons, I was induced two days after my final exams ended. This gave me around two weeks before returning to classes. My spring wasn't dandy, however, as I had several medical complications resulting in numerous doctor's visits and surgeries, which meant missing classes and having to self-teach some of my senior classes. It also meant pumping breast milk once or twice a day in my car with shades up when I could go and working off very little sleep, but that's another story. I managed through all that to graduate in May with my degrees in engineering and philosophy, but wish it could have been made easier and maybe some complications avoided by getting to take some time off. My work is an entirely different story. I work closely with the welding industry and due to environmental hazards, would have to stop doing my job over health concerns for the baby. I guess I would have to change to an inside office job unrelated to my degree or training 
or leave and hope there's a job there when I'm ready to return. This is about all I can imagine since I'm the only woman in the entire company in the boys club of getting to go to industrial sites. So there's a lot of concern that I fit into the idea of a younger employee, which is typically male and doesn't take leave when a child is born. The few women that I know have returned after giving birth took maybe two weeks and had zero complications. My company isn't cruel by any means, and they really support family, especially in times of need, which we've experienced. But the environment is lean and one of the no-free lunch when it comes to getting the job done. This is a small part of why my husband and I decided to stop with our daughter and not have another child. So thanks for that insight, Samantha. And thanks to everyone who's written in to us. Momstuff at HowStuffWorks.com is where you can send your emails. And for links to all of our social media, as well as all of our blogs, videos, and podcasts, including this one, with links to our sources so you can learn more about the psychology of couple speak, head on over to StuffMomNeverToldYou.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 